This season of Influencing Entrepreneurs is brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Organization of Charlotte. EO Charlotte is part of the world's premier network of successful entrepreneurs, embracing the unique qualities of the entrepreneur. Desire to build? Extreme achievement? Quest for new experiences. EO opens a new world for peers to learn from and inspire each other, leading tremendous business successes and a richer personal life. EO Charlotte, where entrepreneurs belong. Coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs. This coach said, well, why can't this be your calling? And I said, what do you mean? He says, you are getting hundreds and thousands of people jobs every day. You're changing lives. Why can't that be the focus? And it was like, that's when the light bulb went on and went, oh, maybe it can be what we do. So the focus became at that point on really raising great leaders in the business to continue to do our calling, which was to get people jobs, to continue to spread that. After years of teaching entrepreneurship and consulting with multiple companies, I realized that when business leaders share stories of not only their successes, but their mistakes, it had a huge impact in the classroom. So I thought, why not document those stories? On this episode of Influencing Entrepreneurs, we'll hear from Tana Green. Tana is an award-winning business owner, author, and speaker. At 17, she vowed to own her own business by the time she was 30. She spent the next 12 years defining what that business was going to be. But her purpose was clear. She wanted to help others by finding them employment. I'm Kazmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. I I do want to hear all about your story, but kind of like looking through your notes and everything, I've noticed that you're a member of the Women's President Organization and a board member for Safe Alliance. Was until I had to come off for 12 years, yes. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Served my time. Can you tell me a little bit about those organizations? Sure, sure. So Women President's Organization was started by a woman out of New York who found that there weren't places for entrepreneurs that had reached a certain level of success with their revenues and to get together. So she formed this, and you had to be doing at least a million dollars in revenues uh, in order to be a member of this. And then they started breaking them out in $10 million groups, $50 million groups, and they get together four times a year and act as an advisory board. Okay. So um, been, I've been one, I'm one of the founding members of that wow. two years ago. And it has been one of the reasons for my success, just really being able to connect with these other women. And, and they drive you because, like, they come in and they're doing 50 million. You're only doing 30. And you're like, oh, gosh, i got to get to that 50 mark. Right. I can't let yeah. them out. Let me say, there's a lot of competition in the group, but a lot of support. Excellent. So that's been fantastic. And Safe Alliance is mm-hmm. around domestic violence. Oh, okay. And because of my story and my past having survived domestic violence, I wanted to give back, so I became their spokesperson during the time that we raised $10 million to build the new shelter here in Charlotte. Okay. And raised, um, we did that during 19, I mean, 2009, um, mm-hmm. the worst economic possible time yeah. to raise $10 million, <laughs> yeah. but it was so needed in Charlotte, right. and we were able to build a new facility yeah. for uh, women that are finding themselves in a domestic violence situation. Well, well, a lot of organizations come out of such kind of trauma or traumatic events. And you mentioned your story regarding that. I don't know, it, we, we don't have to talk about that. Or... Oh no, absolutely. It's all part of the story. So. Okay. So <laughs> we'll, it, we can talk about that because I really, one of the things that I love that it starts off is at 17 years old, you said, I want to own a business yeah. by I'm 30, but yeah. but how, does, how do these stories come together? Well, um, so to, 
The whole backstory for me is my father was a military officer and my mother was a stay-at-home mom and it was in the 60s and we're living in Chesapeake, Virginia and the perfect ranch, brick ranch home with the three bedrooms. You know, I have a two-year-old older brother. I'm on the honor society. I enter high school. And what does any girl want in high school but to have the boyfriend, right? So Not I a boyfriend, lucky, no, the boyfriend. boyfriend, yeah. And I got lucky and got Mr. Popular who okay. was a senior. Well, by the time the summer um, between my ninth and 10th grade, I was pregnant. I was 15 years old. So uh, coming from a Christian family that was uh, all about love and support, they said, what do you want to do? We said, we want to get married. Next thing you know, I'm walking down the aisle in a white dress at 15. Had my son and you really, 16. And you really, you're trying to do the right thing. Right. I mean, it's- right. it, it was the right thing to do. We right. thought we were in love. I thought yeah. I was in love. Yeah. And at that age, it feels oh, yeah. like no other. Right. And he was so, I thought he was so caring because it was, oh, you can't ride the bus. It's dangerous. And oh, I don't want you hanging around those people. I didn't know that these were signs of control because nobody had ever named that for me. Right. So I thought he loved me and was just protecting me. Right. And then as the, as I got into the marriage and into the house, the control began to get worse and worse and became physical. So here I am at a school, ninth grade education, right. with a baby, and he goes off to work and takes the phone with him. That was when you had a, the rotary dial phone, right? right. Unplug it and take it because I'm not allowed to talk or see anyone when he's not there. So okay. it progressively got worse. And you're, you're, you're no longer in school at all? No, I didn't go back to school because um, that was not allowed. Right. So, I, and I kept it from everybody. Um, I didn't tell anybody what was going on because I was going to fix it. Right. Women, we fix everything. Right. It, but when you say they don't know what's going on, do, right. they, do they not know you had a child? Oh, no. They know I have a child. They come to visit and okay. I act like everything's fine, but okay. behind the scenes, it's terrible. It's, okay. So um, it was a, there was a point in time where we were going on a date. My parents were going to babysit that we, he came home late from work, had been drinking. We got in the car. I was crying because I'd been spent all day getting ready to go out. I mean, what what 17 year old? What do right. they want? Right. They want to go be with their friends. And so, um, you know, did the whole you didn't have curling irons then and you didn't have, you know, so you had to put these big curlers on top yeah. of him, wear them all day to get straight hair. Yeah. So I'd done this all day long, got ready. He comes home late. We get in the car because I want to go, still go out. We get to my parents house. He takes the carrier out with the eight month old. He gets out beats me up and drives off. I had to go to the door. Right. Well, that was the first time my parents realized what was really, I knew they knew something wasn't right, but right. they didn't know it was like this. And, and just a side note, at this point, is this the first time it's physical or is oh, this no. the first time anybody finds it's out? first time anybody's okay. found out. So um, my mother was very wise and said, you need to talk to somebody. It didn't have a name back then. This right. was 1975. Yeah. There wasn't a thing called domestic violence. Right. Um, so she called a counselor at the YWCA and said, can you spend some time with my daughter? Right. In the meantime, my father went looking for him. Didn't right. find him, thank goodness. Cause right. But that, that, <laughs> that honestly, a, that, that, that's thing. at that point in time, that's all we knew. Right. Yeah. That's all we knew. So this, this person spent a week with me and said, at the end of a week, they said, there's nothing wrong with you. This is the situation you're in. And they named it. And they were able to give me all of the, you know, the cycles and the what happened and what's in his brain and all this. And, and they said, you have to choose whether you want to be a survivor or a victim. It's 17 years old. 17. Yeah. And a ninth grade education. Right. And they said, you need to go home and just write down goals that are important to you. What do you want to accomplish out of life? 
And I wish I had that piece of paper because I wrote four goals on that piece of paper. One was I wanted to uh, finish school. I didn't want to GED. I wanted the cap and gown. I wanted to do the whole thing the right way. So I did finish school and I went to business school because I didn't have four years with a child and right. I'm taken care of. I think my child support was $15 a week. So right. I was like, <laughs> um, and I was living with my parents. I was going to say, are you yes. moving back in with your parents? I'm in with my parents. Yeah. So I finished school. I got a great job. Uh, it turned into a commission job. And my second goal was to own my own home by the time I was 25. Well, I was buying my first home at 22. Okay. So check off the second box. And this is in the 70s at this, this is point? In, this is in 1977, 78. Okay. So then my, um, my fourth goal was to marry a knight in shining armor somewhere along this journey, right. which I did. Um, actually, yesterday was our 36th wedding anniversary. Mm. So I married him when I was 26. And the other goal was to own my own business by the time I was 30. And I opened the doors of the business I currently have at 29 years old. And so I, it, the process of setting goals and being very visual and clear was, was an, the introduction to me very early on. And plus I was in survival mode. I was in heightened survival I was gonna mode. say, <laughs> right now you're only surviving. I gotta be honest, you're, you're, you're knight in shining armor. Yeah. That's got to also create some challenges at that point because at one point you th you thought you had a night. Yes. You now you've got an education. You've yes. you've got your own home. Yes. How do you how do you approach that? Because I got to imagine it's very guarded. At very that. guarded. But right. I was very fortunate that it was set up a blind date with somebody I really trusted and right. knew the family very well. So right. that was that was kind of easy, and it was. It was, um, you know, not to say that 36 years is perfect. Plus, we've been in business together for 33. Right. <laughs> so not to say that life has always been perfect. But, right. you know, it's it's making your decisions of what you want and working at it together and communicating right. that really got us there and got the businesses where they are today. So you you you, you build, you get out of this scenario, you, you, serve, you do more than survive, you thrive. Right. You get to a point where at 29, you're going to start your own business. Yes. And I, I know at 17, you write down a goal, I want to own a business. Right. It could be a factory, right. it could be a hotel, you, just a business right. is a place, it's right. a dream. Right. What is that first business? Well, what's interesting, and, and looking back on it, it's easy to tell this story, but during the time, I don't know that I really knew um, what was happening, but it was like listening to the universe. It was like, things that you encounter, things that happen to you, they all happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. We may not understand why now, but they all happen for a reason. And I think that um, my job that I got that was paying so much money was a an admissions counselor or career counselor at a college. Okay. So the college I went to, business school, hired me back. So I became, I started helping other people find a way to get educated that didn't go to a traditional four-year college to get some type of skill to go on and survive and thrive. So, um, and I'm sure doing that, you're probably running into people that have a similar story to you along the way. A lot of them, or a lot of them just couldn't afford it, or a lot of them weren't in households right. that talked about college. Well, even or, if it's not that exact story, it's a, a story that revolves around the same right. themes in, in and struggle and survival. Yes. yes. And so, what I found in that was helping people. What I liked the most about that was seeing them get the job. Right. So I said, I want to go into a business that helps people get jobs. Right. And that's how my work choice got started. Was it, it's very rewarding at that point. Are you thinking of the 
So starting a business and just doing what you love, are you seeing the dollars and cents in it or are you just more about the passion at it that point? It was all about the passion. It was about earning a living and, and using the passion at that point. Okay. So um, we, my husband and I bought a franchise, a staffing company franchise. So mm -hmm. I came home from work one day and said, hey, this is what I want to do and read this article, this company's franchising. And he was in the nuclear industry. He was a scientist. He's like, <laughs> okay, sounds good. Right. <laughs> we ran the numbers and we're like, oh, this is great. You know, this is yeah. something we can sink our teeth into because it's, you know, it's a, it's a professional. It's Monday through Friday. You don't have a lot of inventory. You can grow a business that can grow and grow and grow. So it had all the components of a good business model mm -hmm. that you could sell someday. So going into that business, um, we started with the franchise. The franchise ended 15 years later, 2002. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we had to make a decision which way we were going to go, whether we were going to take it out on our own or sell it back to the franchisor. Mm -hmm. At that time, the franchisor had gone public, had mm -hmm. brought in a new CEO, and it was very obvious that he did not care for franchisees and didn't care to even buy them back, just wanted to take their business and right. move them out of the way. And this was in, uh, we realized this around February of 2000. Mm -hmm. And um, we started watching it closely and we had raised a manager to become the person that would go with the sell because we're thinking mm -hmm. we're going to sell it back right. and go do our calling. So right. that's another whole part of I got to hear about this calling. Yes. So we're going to get yes. right back to that in a moment. <laughs> yes. So we're, we're talking about calling and it's like, okay, so I, I have to get the money from this business to go do this calling because that's where I'm supposed to be. So you are thinking of a, a clear change right. at this I'm point. Thinking of a, I don't know what it is. Right. Just know that I'm supposed to be doing something. And this franchisee uh, or franchise or yes. is sparking this. Yes, because I know they're, they, they're going to buy it. We're yeah. going to take the money and we're going to go. Well, about six months prior to the end of it, 9-11 hit, and I was in all manufacturing. Business cut in half overnight. So you're looking at this and you're saying, well, now I don't really have a whole lot to sell. Um, and the person that we had raised to go with the sell comes and gives her notice, says she's taken a job in Atlanta and moving, come to find out the franchise worker hired her and moved her to Atlanta so that at the end of the contract, they could come in and take all of the business. Right. So now we're complete threatened around yeah. everything we built for 15 years yeah. and had to make a lot of choices at yeah. that point. Chose to go independent, but it came across, we hired an outside um, coaching company to kind of come in and help us figure out well, what's the name gonna be? How are we gonna grow it? What do we want out of this? What, right. what are we looking for? And that coach said, um, why do you feel you have this calling? What is this calling? And we dove really deep into what that meant to me. And what mm -hmm. came out of that was, is that I couldn't be making money and do a calling at the same time. So somewhere along the way in my childhood, um, through either in the church or with my parents, money represented evil and calling was something you didn't make money at doing. Right. So I never could correlate the fact that I, I, was I, I mean, it right. it, well, it represents greed because right. you know, what is enough? <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So this coach said, well, why can't this be your calling? And I said, what do you mean? He says, you are getting hundreds and thousands of people jobs every day. You're changing lives. 
why can't that be the focus? And it was like, that's when the light bulb went on and went, oh, maybe it can be what we do. Right. So the focus became at that point on really raising great leaders in the business to continue to do our calling, which was to get people jobs, to continue to spread that. So uh, you kind of, you, you, you mentioned this calling and this vague general uh, sense of finding people jobs, but really at the core of the emotion of it, what is the calling that you're really, how do you express that what, what you're actually doing? It's joy comes from serving others. That's the bottom line. Is what I, what I learned was is material things didn't buy you happiness. Climbing up the ladder and awards don't bring you happiness. Um, I think there's really three levels of happiness, and it really is that that one is rock stardom, where hey, I won that ten million dollar contract, but it doesn't last. Right. Uh, you know, I, I got named the PTA president, but it goes away. Right. You know, and then it was I, mean, I need a hobby. That was the other thing I started running toward. It was like, okay, well, I'm doing nothing but work. I need something other than that. Yeah. So I started oil painting and I started, I didn't buy small canvases. I bought them so big they didn't even fit in the SUV. Right. I mean, it's like I overdo everything, I guess. It's <laughs> so. a very common trait of entrepreneurs. Yeah. They, they don't do something, they don't dabble. Right, yeah. right, right. I got to go all the way. Yeah. And what I learned is once you put the glaze on it, you donated it for auction or gave it to someone or hung it on the wall, it was done. And at the same time, that was when I got the call from Safe Alliance. Mm -hmm on asking me if I would be a board member. And that came about because my best friend's daughter called and said, our class is talking about healthy relationships. She was a senior at a private school. Mm -hmm. And she said, I know your story. And she said, I know you haven't publicly talked about it, but would you come and speak to my class? Well, and then, I said, yes. And that's my first class. So you have this experience. You, you know, you shared the story so eloquently, but I'm sure you didn't share the story for a while. So is this that clicking moment that yes. that I could really serve with yeah, this experience? And, it, and, it, and it's so funny because you can talk about it like it just happened, but it took years for this to unfold. Right. And I couldn't understand um, when she asked me to speak and I said yes, and then I got worried about it. And I thought, well, what if they ask me questions I can't answer about details or statistics or so I called the hotline for domestic violence and said, can you send somebody with me to this class? Uh -huh. And so this woman came with me, helped me present. She said, can we have lunch? Little did I know she was the CEO of Safe oh. Alliance at the time. And um, she said, I would like for you to join our board. And so all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to give back now. This has been, I'm in, I'm close to 40 some years old now. So this has been 25 years of silence, right. mainly because I thought people would think less of me. I lived this big lie of, I never told anybody I didn't have a degree. Right. I mean, here I am a successful businesswoman and right. I don't have a degree, right? Right. That's shameful. Yeah. Then it was, I got married at 15 and had a baby at 16. Right. That's shameful. So you hide all this because you want everybody to think you're something else. And when I became authentic, it's when my leadership soared. It's when I became more joyful. It's when I started serving. You became vulnerable. Yes, yes. When you were able to let all that go and just say, hey, it is what it is and I hope my story helps somebody. So they began to raise the money. That was right at the year they had done the study to say, hey, we only have 30 beds. We need 120 beds for Charlotte. Right. So let's find property, let's break ground, um, which they decided $10 million was the number. 
and they said, we want to put you on the board and we want to put you on the committee to raise the money. And then all of a sudden it was, we want you to be the spokesperson. Well, when I first got up and told my story, I couldn't even get through it without just bawling. Right. I mean, it was just, it was like this thing that I had hidden for so long and it started coming out. Like a volcano. Oh, it was like a volcano for sure. I'd stand up in front of 2000 people and I would get to the part where I'd say I'm a survivor and yeah. it would just be yeah. a gush would come. Well, well, even after that, after you tell it the first time or even the fifth time, I'm sure some demons start visiting you that yes. you thought were were long gone. Oh, absolutely. D does that hold you back in some like? No, I think it heals you. Okay. I think I think through that process you're you're healed by being able to face it. The more you tuck it back, the worse it gets. Right. When it comes forward and you talk through it, it gets better and better. And so the, the biggest event for me was they asked me to speak to a group called Men for Change, mm -hmm. which is at, was at the Panther Stadium at the time. And mm -hmm. there was 300 men in that room. And I stood up and told my story. Well, I am on the board at the chamber. Mm -hmm. um, I've been gotten awards all over Charlotte. My business was known. And everybody just sat there and went, what? You? So it was, it, it really became that sense of, wow, this yeah. is, this is, this is um, really helping so many other people. Right. So the joy came from really realizing I can do more to help right. people. And um, a lot of the people that work for us see the video. We have a little video that we put out that the story is there and in hopes that it helps them. I mean, right. we have 18,000 employees around the country. So, and hopefully to be 20,000 and 25,000 over the next year. So your, your business, uh, it, it helps people find jobs. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if the best way to, is it would say staffing or recruiting or whatnot. I would say that this journey to, um, my ultimate goal is to empower the working world. Right. That's a big statement, right? right. But you break that down and we look at the hourly workers that we help. So mm -hmm. we're talking manufacturing, distribution. We're talking large companies that use a thousand contingent workers on top of their 6,000 that are full-time, right? right? So these are large numbers of people that are working in picking, packing, forklift, manufacturing, hourly workers may not have education. They're working as hard as they can. That's their living. That's the majority of our working population right. are in hourly jobs. And I wanted to give them something they've never had before, and that was to empower them. So my work choice came about five years ago. We looked at the statistics of the staffing industry, of the light industrial staffing industry, and turnover was 433% per year. Absenteeism ran at 30 to 33% per day. And we said, this model doesn't work anymore. This doesn't serve the client, nor does it serve the people. So we went to our largest client and said, we'd like to take absenteeism off the table. Right. It said, what do you mean? We said, stop dinging them for absenteeism. You're losing your best players because it's the three strikes you're out rule. Right. Why not let them self-schedule what they want to work, what shift they want to work, and let's track that for a while. First time you said that, how well does that go over? Well, they said, have you lost your mind? <laughs> right. And they said, okay, we'll give you one small department of 400 people to test it on. Right. So we were just using an off-the-shelf technology scheduler at that point, mm -hmm. and we gave them their choice to pick their own ships. 
Well, we started getting 90, 95, 98% show rate on every shift. We realized after about six months, we hadn't billed one hour of overtime. This was big. Right. And we hadn't turned over but 5% of the population. And it, they weren't turned over. They were just you, use it at the time. Were yeah. you expecting these types of results? No. <laughs> we were expecting good results, but not that good. good. So we said, we're on to something here. Talk about empowering the working world giving empowerment to a workforce that's never had it. Right. Why do you think so many people blocked Uber? Right. It's independence. Yeah. I can live my life and work at the same time. Right. So they run out, they drive cars with people throwing up in the back seat, and it's the greatest job on the planet, right? right? <laughs> so we really, what we did was we took a model like that and turned it into a true W-2 employee with benefits that work for these companies. And it's just, through the pandemic, it's been phenomenal when you think about the women in the workforce right. and the majority have left the workforce. Right. I think the statistics like 2.5 million have left the workforce for women. For the month of September, every unemployment claim claimed was by a woman. Wow. So you, and then our population is about 56% women. Right. Well, now they can take an app and say, I can work first shift on Monday because I have my mother. I can work third shift on Wednesday because my husband's at home that night and I can work uh, Saturday shift. Well, who lets you do that? Right. So it has proven to be just an unbelievable tool for empowerment to these hourly workers. How about educating the employers? Because I'm sure that it's, it's harder to get them on board than it is the workforce. Actually, that's been a, a very easy part, believe it or not, because the old model was failing so bad. They were getting 50% show rate from a traditional staffing company. Right. And then what we learned was that one of the clients said, well, can we use your app as a SaaS product? Can we put it, our people on it? And I said, well, what would you want to do that for? Yeah. <laughs> like, why do they want to use my app, right? right? They said, well, we have 33% absenteeism too. And I went, what? And I didn't think that a permanent workforce would call in that often. But right. the average person works 30 hours a week in those hourly jobs. And I asked a couple of them, why? And they said, because I can't make it on 20 hours a week. I need the money for at least 30 hours a week right. to live. So they know at the point that it takes to live right. and they know how many hours they can work. Some of them work 40 and want more than that every week. Right. But the average is 30 hours a week. So when the client said that, they said, we just want it for, the, for our permanent people to be able to hit that I'm not gonna be here or I'm gonna be on vacation. That then feeds to the community of workers that have already been trained right. to take that shift. So now they have, not only do they have the show rate in the contingent side of the house, but they have it in their own permanent. So it's a constant feeder of employees that stay and work and have each other's back. It's kind of like the old waitress who says, right. hey, I want to go to a concert. Will you take my shift right. for me? So you started off as a staffing agency. You're now this logistics company. And um, one of the lessons I had learned in business before uh, is you, we make many mistakes. We do things we don't want to do or, or aren't in our core. Um, I learned at a point that I, I don't take work from anyone I wouldn't do for free. And it doesn't mean I do it for free, but it's something that I'm passionate about to do. So your whole 30 year career yes. is based on that yes. sole model. Yes. So 
at 17, you didn't say, I want to be in the logistics business. No. <laughs> I don't want to be a SaaS, you know. Right. Uh, what are some of the, the hardest learned lessons that got you to that point while you, um, without sacrificing serving? Or at some point, did you have to sacrifice serving? Um, I would say I went in and out of that mode of really being clear on my purpose. I don't think you can stay focused 100% of the time. Right. And just to let you know about uh, failures, successes, I've had seven startups since I began this business within a staffing world. I've exited two successfully. I have one left. You do the math. Yep. So there's been failure in there. Right. There's been things started that didn't pan out. There's been companies that we tried to go down a path with a, a specific niche that did not that did not work. And failure doesn't feel good. It, right. do, it doesn't feel And you can get down into this valley with it and feel like, well, I'm just a failure. This just isn't going to work. Is there a failure that you thought, like, you? it still baffles you? This was the one that should have worked. Oh, yeah. Would you share that? Absolutely. Started a uh, company called Blue Bloodhound and uh, raised $10 million for that company. And um, we were starting to get great traction and it was for truck drivers and it allowed them to be an Uber driver in trucking. So if a specific transportation company needed a driver to do this run, they could post it and then the driver could come in. So we had all their drivers credentialing, everything is done but it was a 1099 model. So it was right. an independent contractor model. And we had a lot of um, battles in different states uh, in dealing with that 1099 issue. It was a brilliant idea. It still needs to be there. There's so many drivers that would love to go back on the road and drive if they could do it on their terms. Right. The only way they're gonna do that is own the truck. Right. And a lot of them walked away from that. So that just seemed like the obvious thing to do and it just couldn't get traction. It would have been better for the employees or the the, yes. the truck owners, yes. for the suppliers and yes. everyone. Everyone. Regulation. Oh, regulations killed yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was a hard one because it was it was just so clear the picture. And I think it was just too soon. I think it'll it will come about again. But you have to cut your losses at a certain point. Right. You have to say this is not working. I'm pouring more and more money into this and I just have to walk away. As we kind of reflect on the trauma that really sparked all of this yeah. in, in that, that survive or thrive mentality, what's the impact that you had that you, on someone else that you look at and you, it just, you can still feel that warmness in your heart of the impact it had on them? I think there's a lot of my employees throughout the years that I can say that about, but one in particular is now my president. Excellent. And it was, was it just through uh, collaboration? Was it through? Yeah, through just really um, becoming authentic, really helping him become authentic mm -hmm. and understanding and thriving. And I once had dinner with a CEO of a public company mm -hmm. and um, we're sitting there having dinner at this private steak restaurant in this private room and he just starts pouring out his story to me. And it was a traumatic story. Mm -hmm. And he said, I do not know why I just said that to you. <laughs> so I turned around and told him my story. Right. Well, he said, would you, would you fly out to my company out in the Midwest and have a nonprofit and speak to this group of young students that I work with that are in poverty, that are in bad situations? 
I just want you to tell them your story. And I said, absolutely. He said, never in a million years did I think you'd really get on the plane and come and do this. Well, I did. And I get to his corporate headquarters and he says, well, before we go, we have a leadership group and I'd love for you to address them. So we walk into this stadium <laughs> of a room that has like a thousand seats in it and they're miking me up and I'm like, I'm not prepared for this. I right. have no idea what I'm gonna say. And I stood up and I told my story and then he stood up and told his story. He had never told it before that he was homeless as a kid, that he had to steal pizza. I mean, this was a guy with an MBA, the CEO of a public company who was a football player at one of the top colleges and had gone through that, but he never told his story. And he stood up and told it to his employees, everybody in that room. And just the watching him come out of that and become authentic. And my understanding is he's still speaking to this day and that's been like four or five years ago. Well, excellent. So. Well, thank you so much. You've really illustrated how uh, passion and not just all dollars and cents can actually build a business, build a cause yes. more than anything and inspire and help other people. So thank you so much for, for enjoyed it. sharing thank today. Hey, thank you. Thanks for watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash nextgeducation or visit chasmerwar.com to catch up on previous episodes. And be sure to be on the lookout for our next episode featuring Fabi Pressler, the owner and president of Spark Publications, an award-winning independent publishing firm specializing in the design of magazines, publications, and independently published books for print, digital, and interactive media.